0: All right, you can turn in your Bible to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22 this morning. We'll be in verses uh, 1 through 5 again. Didn't uh, quite make it all the way through last week. Uh, life and light in Christ. So today we'll have part 2 of that. You know, the, the Apostle John wrote quite a bit of our New Testament for us. He wrote, of course, the Gospel of John, uh, three epistles to various groups of believers, and this book of Revelation that uh, we are told right in the beginning is circulated throughout seven different churches that were in existence at that time in the first century, if you'll remember. We're getting towards the end of our study of the book of Revelation. We ought to at least be able to remember a few things about the uh, foundational issues with the book, like it was written by the Apostle John, uh, written to these seven churches, most likely written about 95, 96 uh, AD, AD 95 or 96, somewhere in that uh, range of time. The last book of the Bible that was written appropriately as It is uh, summing up, as we're going to see, uh, summing up literally human events. And the way that God can do this is through the fact that Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, is God in human flesh, is both life and light as we see here in Revelation 22. 22. God uh, God, through the Apostle John also made this fact known in the Gospel of John that Jesus proclaimed that he is the light of the world and that he is also the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way to God the Father. And we see that uh, these events historically playing out in the book of Revelation and kind of their, their impact. Revelation 22 shows us uh, this truth will manifest itself, the truth that Jesus Christ is life and light embodied in a person. How that truth is going to manifest itself in eternity. Uh, What that actually means for us for the rest of of time in memoriam. We uh, mentioned last week that uh, we're studying the What's called by theologians the eternal state," but that doesn't mean that time ceases to exist. Uh, it, kind of an easy trap to fall into, that we're just uh, we just go off into the, into the ether somewhere and sit on a cloud, and, and that's just it. Uh, that doesn't really sound all that appealing <laughs> to me. I don't know about you. Uh, it doesn't sound all that great. Uh, eternity is going to be much different than that. And time doesn't cease to exist, it just goes on and on and on and on forever. And it will be uh, eternal bliss as we will see spent in service to the Lord. So there are some implications that go along with that. It's very appropriate that the book of Revelation is is the last book of the Bible. as The the Bible is a unique uh, book. It's not like religious books, quote-unquote religious books of other uh, faiths or other faith traditions, other religions, whatever you want to call it. The, the Bible is made up of 66 books written by 39 different people over a 1,500-year period explaining what God is doing in the world. And uh, it's not a set of rules, it's not a set of do's and don'ts, it is, it is a book of historical events that are recorded for us so that we can have faith in what God, our Creator, is doing in this world. Uh, so the book of Revelation, it's not meant to scare us, it's not meant to... Uh, cause us to want to crawl into a hole or crawl under our desks and, and this kind of thing and just hide from the world because it's, it's so terrible, it's actually meant to do exactly the opposite of that. It is to embolden us, to increase our faith, enhance our faith in what God is doing in this world. And the book of Revelation is not just a uh, revelation, It's not revelations with an S on the end either. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the the revelation of what he is going to do in the future to secure life for us the way that God intended it to be. And so uh, he is revealing future events to us. God is revealing how he is going to carry out his plan this world. And it, these uh, events that are described here are not unique to the book of Revelation as we've seen. We've been going back into the Old Testament and seeing uh, many, many of these events that are covered in other places. They're just uh, given more detail. They're set in more of a chronological order for us. It's, the book of Revelation is a very orderly book laying out these events for us step by step if we just care to uh, understand them the way that they're written anyway. And so it's kind of like soldiers who know the plan before the event takes place. Uh, For military operations, take a lot of planning. You can ask uh, anybody who's served uh, in the military that some it can seem uh, overwhelming at times the amount of detail that has to be covered in planning out some sort of operation like D-Day for example. Uh, June 6th that's coming up here in a couple of days. It behooved uh, the people who were involved in that to know what they were going to do before they jumped out of the airplane or the ramp went down on the landing craft. They had to know what they were going to do. And they also had to know what the person next to them was going to do. And uh, they had to have provisions for a certain number of days and because and they had to know all these things because things were going to go wrong in their life coming up as they were trying to carry out this operation. But they can always go back to the plan. Okay, if this happens, then I'm going to do that. I know that our ultimate goal is over here. I'm going to continue pressing on towards that ultimate goal. And th- and so the plan becomes a comfort to them. Because things are going to get erratic and, and chaotic for soldiers going in <laughs> to battle. But they can always fall back on that plan and their training and all of the things that they had been working for their whole life to, to make this event take place. And so the book of Revelation, the Bible in general is very much like that. When things go wrong in our lives and they're going to go wrong, I don't care how much faith you have. Uh, you can't have so much faith that things aren't going to go wrong in your life. That is, that's a false teaching that is rampant. Uh, Throughout Christendom, unfortunately. But when things go wrong, you can fall back on the plan. When you find out that you have stage three cancer, you can, uh, it doesn't mean that, well, you know, oh, I don't even have to care about that. But you can fall back on the plan that God is working out all things together for good, for those that love the Lord. And we can go to Revelation and see when things seem to be falling. Uh, are falling apart around us. Uh, <laughs> I won't make the joke. Uh, we can see our leaders stumbling around and this kind of thing, and it seems like literally everything is falling down. I guess I did make the joke. Uh, <laughs> we can rest in the fact that God has a plan for the world, and He's carrying it out. And we get to be privileged enough to take part in it. God is in control. Even when it seems like things are uh, falling apart, they're actually falling exactly into place. They're falling into place for these events that were laid out for us in the book of Revelation. We see that the churches are promised to be taken out of this time of testing. Revelation 3.10, just for one. Uh, The churches are promised to be taken out of this time of testing that is to come upon the whole world. And then in Revelation 6 through 19, the time of testing is very much described in great detail for us. More detail in Revelation than any other book of the Bible. We know this is being the seven year tribulation period. Uh, soul, uh, seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments coming upon the world. Series of judgments. This happens, then this happens. Then this will happen. Then this will happen if we understand this book in a literal, grammatical way, plain sense of the words on the page, uh, grammatical just means paying attention to the, the rules of language, this is what we come up with. A seven year period of tribulation before, or, uh, before Jesus comes again to the earth. So, we believe at Flushing Bible Church in a pre tribulation rapture of the church and also a pre millennial coming of Christ to the earth before his literal 1,000 year kingdom upon the earth. That's what's described for us in Revelation 6 through 19, tribulation period. Then Christ comes again, then a 1,000 year kingdom period upon the earth, then sin, death, uh, everything that is wrong with the world is judged, cast into the lake of fire and then as we've been studying the last few weeks there is this period known as the eternal state where we will live with God in perfect fellowship. So, the. Uh, Timelines are good for us. They're good for me. I don't know about you. A lot of times, visually, it's easier to tell uh, what's going on with a visual representation. Tribulation, second coming, kingdom, eternal state. That's the, the basic timeline for the book of Revelation. And there are a lot of views out there that vary from this. Every one of the views that differentiate from a pre-tribulation rapture, seven years of tribulation, Christ comes again, and then a kingdom period, rely upon a non-literal translation of the Bible at some point. And they they vary on the scale of how much they're disregarding a literal interpretation uh, depending upon what their point of view is, and so we've looked at some of these various uh, errant millennial views, as we have the, titled here. Post-millennialism is the idea that Jesus comes again to the earth after the kingdom is established. That is completely contrary to the Book of Revelation and, in fact, every other uh, point in the scriptures that describe Christ, the Messiah, coming to the earth again to establish his kingdom. Every single reference is to a coming to the earth and then a kingdom. So post-millennialism very much depends on not interpreting the words of the Bible literally. Amillennialism, this idea that there is no kingdom disregards a lot of what the Bible plainly says that there will be a kingdom upon the earth. These two are very closely related. Postmillennialism and amillennialism are very closely uh, related and rely on what we have here written as a spiritual millennium. That the kingdom is not literal. It's in our hearts. This kind of thing. And these kinds of ideas that do not mesh with the plain reading of Scripture. And so we like to have this one in our minds before we move on that describes what the Bible describes, a tribulation, second coming, literal kingdom, great white throne judgment, and then eternity with God the way that He originally intended life to be. And so in order to accomplish this, we have to know something or... uh, In order for this to happen, God has to be endowed with some characteristics. And two of those characteristics are that he is literally life and he is literally uh, light also. Uh, that That he contains life within him and he's able to give it to other people. He contains light within him. That's what was revealed literally on the Mount of Transfiguration. Christ revealed a part of the glory that is within him. He can dispel all darkness and sin simply because of who he is. And and we see that playing out here in Revelation 22. Last time we looked at the, the produce a little bit, we saw some of the presence, and today we'll make our way to the perpetuity, or the fact that this is going to last forever. Notice Revelation 22 and verse 1 says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." We saw this sequence again, a uh, sequence of events that then he showed me. We're continuing uh, to see that John is, a, is an eyewitness to these events and that he's laying out this sequence of events. There's this river, He sees the river of the water of life. We saw last time that water is life. We talked about the rivers and how uh, not just ancient people, but people until, I don't know, about 50 years ago, depended on or realized the importance of rivers in the life of people. We're kind of detached from that a little bit today. But rivers and water is literally life. And that this river of the water of life that is in the the New Jerusalem here where we will dwell for eternity is clear as crystal, very much like the gospel, is clear. People love to make it complicated, but it doesn't need to be complicated because it isn't complicated. The fact of the matter is that the scriptures lay out very plainly that we are sinful creations of God. God is perfect without sin. We, on the other hand, can uh, choose to rebel against him As our creator, that's what sin is. Uh, But God, in His mercy and in His grace, has made it possible for us to be made right before Him so that we can have a relationship with Him. He desires that more than than anything for His creatures to have a relationship with Him and be in fellowship with Him. And He has provided the way for us. And the, the Bible makes it very clear what that way is, and it is faith in what Christ did for us. That's what we celebrated at the communion table this morning. It's based on a single condition. It isn't based on making sure you take communion at least three times a year, uh, five or six if you're really spiritual. Uh, you have to pray a certain number of times a day. You've got to belong to the right church. Uh, uh, you know, it really helps if you have the right parents and uh, it tremendously helps if you give enough money to the church of course it isn't based on any of those things it's based on a single condition trust in what christ has done for you simple trust believe in all those kinds of words are synonymous they mean exactly the same thing trust believe in put your faith in put your confidence in what christ did for you on the cross understanding who he is. He is God in human flesh who died for you on the cross. He rose again. And the only way that we can have life is through trusting in what he's done for us. That's what John 3.18 says. It says it three times. Believe. Uh, You're judged because you haven't believed. You will be judged because you didn't believe. There's only one condition. Belief. Trust in what Christ has done for us. It is clear as crystal. A lot of a lot of the problems come when we don't understand that salvation is not just a. a it's not simplistic. It's simple in order to receive it, but it isn't simplistic. It is uh, really kind of the way we present it. The way the scriptures present it is as a, a as a multifaceted uh, gift that is given to us, and we receive it by way of faith. That's justification. Sometimes we call that the past tense of our salvation. Some may call it the first phase of salvation. You may hear it described as. But we receive it by believing. That's what John 3.18, John 3.16, uh, Acts 16.31, all of these passages that describe the receiving of eternal life How can I be saved? Believe, Paul says. One one condition. Believe and you will be saved. That's justification. That's deliverance from the penalty of sin that we are all under. We are all born under sin and its penalty, which is ultimately physical death. Uh, Not ultimately, but part of it, the easy part is physical death. The ultimate uh, part of of sin, consequence of sin, is eternal separation from God. That's what death means, separation. Uh, When we physically die, our spirit is, is physically separated from our bodies. Spiritual death is what is described as being cast into the lake of fire in the book of Revelation. Eternal separation from God. The reason why that happens is because we are sinful and God can't be in the presence of sin. His desire is for us to live with Him forever. So there by definition has to be an eternal punishment for sin if you will not accept uh, the offer of the forgiveness of sin. The offer is through the cross of Christ and it is received by way of faith in Him. And then where the confusion comes in is that people st- uh, will errantly take conditions of sanctification and apply them to justification. Sanctification is the present tense of our salvation, sometimes called the second phase of salvation. But that's this is daily living. This is how God wants us to live in light of the fact. That we are justified. Carrying out these dictates, walking by the by means of the Spirit, trusting in his word moment by moment, uh, one step of sanctification is getting baptized. Uh, none of those guarantee this. This is taken care of. God paid the entire Uh, penalty in Christ on the cross. It is 100% completely taken care of at the cross of Christ. Now, as a believer, God wants you to live in obedience to his word. That is this uh, moment-by-moment, daily uh, practice of sanctification. Submitting yourself to uh, Christ in your daily walk with him being soft to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life, when He convicts you about something that's going on in your life, you're soft to it. And you okay, you're right, Lord. Uh, I'm wrong in this thing. I confess it to you as sin, and now I move on. That is part of the process of sanctification. That doesn't save you for eternity. That saves you in your daily life. That's what, uh, frankly most of the New Testament when it's speaking of salvation is concerned with this part, (laughs) the sanctification part. How God wants us to live in light of the fact that we have salvation through believing in him. And a a major uh, help in this area in sanctification in our daily life is looking forward to the third phase or the future tense of our salvation, glorification, which is what we are seeing here being described for us in Revelation 22. Living with uh, God for eternity in a a state that is perfect. Perfection without sin. God is going to do that for us. He's going to give us the, the body that can do that Instantaneously, in the blink of an eye, in a, in a in a moment's time, he will come again in the clouds. Change us as we uh, read about in First Thessalonians four and First Corinthians fifteen. He will instantaneously change us, catch us up to meet him in the air, and take us back to the Father's house, and we will dwell with the Lord forever. From that point forward, where he goes we will go. When he comes again to the earth, we will be right there with him, as is described in Revelation 19. When he rules and reigns over this earth, over a literal kingdom for a thousand years, we will be there with him, ruling and reigning with him. Revelation 5.10 describes that. When he brings the new Jerusalem to the new heavens and the new earth, and he is there, we will be there with him too. So from the the moment of the rapture of the church, we will be with the Lord forever in a glorified body, the future tense or third phase of our salvation. So while uh, this river of the water of life is clear as crystal, uh, we have a tendency to kind of muddy the waters a little bit by confusing those various tenses of salvation. And we saw last time, we got this picture of the the tree of life and the river of the water of life, if you'll remember, is kind of going down the middle. What John is seeing is a boulevard. The golden street is on both sides of a river and the river is lined with the tree of life. That's kind of the picture that is presented here. Uh, in the New Jerusalem, and this tree has fruit on it that is life-giving. And the leaves we saw heal the nations or heal the people. We saw looked into to that uh, last time. Which brings us to the presence. Notice Revelation 22 and verse 3. "...there will no longer be any curves." and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. I think this is where we left off last time, is the fact that there will be no more curse. And we looked at a little bit of the history of the curse that came into the world in Genesis chapter 3. This is the number one reason why there has to be a literal kingdom upon this earth. God created this earth. He created man to rule and to reign over it. And then Satan came in and usurped that authority. And man, the created being that that God put there to rule and reign over the earth, instead of trusting in God, listened to Satan and kind of trusted in him instead. And that's where, the, that's where the problem lies. And that's where the problem needs to be fixed. And God will be victorious over Satan and sin and rebellion and a literal kingdom in the place on this earth where the problem began. And so there was a curse put on the, the inhabitants of this earth and the earth itself as we saw uh, last time. And this curse is still here. The fact of uh, this fact, more than anything, dispels the idea of we're living in the kingdom today, or we're bringing in the kingdom today. You know, man makes a lot of attempts to erase parts of the curse, like uh, Roundup, for example oh, just get this Roundup, and you can spray it on your garden, and you'll get rid of all your weeds, or you can spray it around in the yard and get rid of the, the, the weeds and this kinds of thing. And isn't it funny that they have to come up with a new uh, seed every year or every s- few years <laughs> to be able to plant in the fields that is resistant to the new weeds that come up that have to be dealt with. seems like God is always one step ahead of, of the, the scientists. That's because there's a curse on this earth and we can't reverse it. Only God can reverse it. Paul talks about that in Romans eighteen. 8, 18. Before there was ever such a thing as Roundup, uh, Paul mentions this. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It almost seems like Paul is talking about this. Look forward to the glory when you're going through the trials of life because the fact of the matter is that the problems of today are incomparable, become insignificant to the glory that we will share with the Lord. Romans eight nineteen, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And when Paul is writing those words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I guarantee you that the Green New Deal is the furthest thing from his mind. Man is not going to solve the problems of the created universe. God is going to do it for us. We are only going to make it worse, uh, if anything. And this curse is clearly, obviously, uh, still here today in this world. Great evidence that we are not living in the kingdom, among among. Uh, Many other, many other things. Notice, in, the, in this eternal state, however, there will be no curse. The curse is going to be completely eradicated. It will be taken off of the new creation. And as a subsequent to that, or a, a result of that, will be that God can be there. God can live where there is no curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb, it says, Revelation 22.3, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. The throne of God and the Lamb. It almost seems as if they merge into one throne. We have seen very clearly that God has a throne in heaven, that Christ, when he went back to heaven, that he was there with the Father on his throne, However, Jesus has a literal throne on this earth that he will sit on in the thousand-year kingdom. And then we're going to see that that in this eternal state that the thrones kind of meld into into one is the picture, and that this will happen in the future. Notice very closely the language that we see here in verse 3. There will no longer be... Any curse and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. Future tense. We see future tense verses throughout this uh, passage, which I find very interesting. Uh, if we just t- look one step more than what is uh, presented to us, John is describing future events clearly. But he's also using, he's seeing it literally, but he's using future tense verbs to describe it, emphasizing the fact that these things will take place in the future. It's not this way now, but it will be in the future. Uh, Christ isn't king now, in spite of what some of our hymns say and uh, some of the things that we read in Christian literature if you will. He isn't king now, he is priest now. And that's a, a, an extremely <coughs> important office that he is fulfilling until the time that he comes to be the king. I thank God that he that Christ is my priest right now in heaven because because of that fact, I can have fellowship with God. You can have fellowship with God because Christ is acting as our high priest right now. And so we shouldn't discount that. We shouldn't put the cart before the horse, proverbially, uh, and make Jesus king now. Because we need him to be our priest until he comes again to this earth. We desperately need that so that we can have fellowship with God. And so, in... uh, we, in our scripture reading this morning, we read about Paul, the apostle, describing these same events that John is describing here in Revelation 22 and 1 Corinthians 15. You can turn back there if you would like. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 where we see Paul describing the importance of the resurrection to the Corinthians uh, at the Corinthians Corinth being kind of the, the modern or the uh, ancient Las Vegas and San Francisco, Los Angeles, all of these kinds of cities balled into one. That was Corinth. They had a lot of false ideas uh, rumbling around there. And one of those was that we saw from our scripture reading that there was uh, a segment of people, at least, who seemed to be part of the church who didn't believe in the resurrection had a problem with the resurrection of a human being and Paul points out the importance of the doctrine of the resurrection and and we today can be kind of disconnected from that because we're we're just living in a different time we're living in a in a society that has kind of a different foundation than these people did in Corinth who were Greek, of course, and so were inundated with Greek culture, Greek religion, Greek uh, everything. They were Greeks. (laughs) And so they had a a very different foundation than what we do. We don't typically have a a problem with resurrection on its face. Some people may not believe in it because it's miraculous and uh, so we're just, they'll just discount it on those ideas uh, because they refuse to believe in anything supernatural or something like that. The Corinthians were different in, in that they had a, had a real problem with this, some of them at least, had a real problem with this idea of a physical resurrection. They saw uh, the physical body as being a hindrance to true spirituality. And so in our, in our physical body, uh, we can't really be spiritual and, because the physical body is bad and the spiritual is good. That is the, the underlying uh, foundation for Greek thought. Physical is bad and spiritual is good. And this did come into uh, like a prominent theological system later and probably around the second century, but the seeds for it were there already in the first century and before then in Greek understanding of the world. Physical is bad, spiritual is good. This is sometimes called dualism when it became a, a kind of a set theology, that's what's known as Gnosticism, uh, but the seeds for it were already there. So that, so the, these Greek people, Corinthians, thought resurrection, eh, I don't know about that. The physical is bad. Why would God raise the physical when it's bad? Well, there's a number of reasons for that. First off, dualism is false. <laughs> God created the, the, the world, the physical world around us. He created us, physical beings and also spiritual beings. God is a spirit. God is also physical. He is human. He came in human flesh to this world as the God-man. And so these Greek people, this uh, idea of the physical being bad and the spiritual good is really just a license to sin. Because after all, my physical is always going to be bad, so I can do whatever I want with my physical body. As long as I'm spiritual, then it's, then it's fine. And in fact, if I uh, do with my physical body uh, bad things for spiritual purposes, that's even better. Hence, temple prostitutes and these kinds of things that we see in the Greek culture. God obviously has a problem with that line of thinking. That's why Paul so often says, shall we continue in sin? Heaven forbid. No, we can't continue in sin as believers in Christ. And then he gives us the tools why we shouldn't be doing that. A physical resurrection shows us that the world is not dualistic. It proves that point. If God is going to raise Christ in a physical body and raise us in a physical body as a result of trusting in him, clearly the physical isn't by nature bad, and neither is the spiritual. It's also a promise of the future kingdom upon the earth. It is a necessity, in fact. Christ had to die for sins but he's also going to be the one who rules and reigns over a physical kingdom upon this earth. Therefore, he has to be resurrected in order to do that. We, as believers in Christ, are promised to rule and reign with him, live with him in this thousand-year kingdom. How are we going to do that if we're all dead? We can't. We have to be resurrected. So that the, the resurrection is a promise of a literal future kingdom. So this idea of the resurrection is very, very important to the gospel. Uh, we physically sin against God, but God has physically taken care of that problem. And he promises that we will live and, and reign with him in the future? The kingdom is future. Are we living in resurrected bodies right now? Are we living in bodies that are capable of living for a thousand years? No. That is uh, an indication that this kingdom is in the future. And it's going to happen when, uh, or what is being described here in Revelation 22, this eternal state, is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. So this resurrection, it has to take place. It has already begun to take place with Christ. That's what he mentions there in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. In other words, there are more resurrections to come. Christ is the first fruits, is the promise of more to come. That's what first fruits is all about. Uh, for verse 21, for since by a man came death. By a man also came resurrection of the dead. In Adam all die. So also in Christ all will be made alive. All who trust in him, of course, uh, is the implication there. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom of the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So keep in mind, Paul isn't laying out a detailed uh, timeline for uh, the Corinthians here, giving them every single aspect like we sometimes do. And, and uh, Clarence Larkin, if you're familiar with his charts, he does goes into very minute detail on all of these different aspects. That's not what Paul is doing here. Uh, He simply states that Christ is the first fruits. Those who are Christ's at his coming uh, will then uh, be resurrected. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. So a kingdom obviously has to happen first before he hands it over. That's what is stated in verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's what we're studying in, in Revelation now. A literal kingdom. Christ must reign over a little, literal kingdom until everything is in subjection to him. Verse 26, The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Death has not been abolished. Therefore we know that we're not living in a kingdom now. The kingdom is in the future. Even in the kingdom there will still be death. Christ has to reign until death is even conquered. That's what we saw in Revelation 20. Death being finally and fully conquered. Verse 27, For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Revelation 22:3, second half. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. Him, the throne of the Lamb of God and of the Lamb, the coming together of these uh, the thrones of Christ and God. How is all that going to play out? How, what is that going to look like when we get there? I don't know. I don't really know how that exactly is going to play out. The scriptures don't tell us, but the fact of the matter is Christ is going to hand the kingdom, It says there in 1 Corinthians 15, over to the Father, and then we will live in eternity with God, and we will serve Him. It says there, we will see His face. Verse 4, they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, along with uh, His bondservant serving Him there at the end of verse 3. Obviously, we can't see God's face today. It is, it is impossible for us. He, he dwells in uh, unapproachable light, it says, 1 Timothy 6.16, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man can see or has seen or can see, to him be the honor and eternal dominion. Uh, Moses wanted to see the glory of of God, when He was meeting with Him in the desert, God uh, told Him, "That is impossible." Exodus thirty-three, twenty. God said to Moses, "You cannot see My face, for no man can see Me and live." Then the Lord said, "Behold, there is a place by Me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about, while My glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with My hand until I have passed by." Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but, not my fa- but my face shall not be seen. The eternal state is different from that. We will see his face there in verse 4. They will see his face. This barrier of sin will be removed so that we can live with God in fellowship. And notice we will have, uh, his name will be on their foreheads. Uh, we have his name today in a, in a spiritual sense, then it will be, it will fully manifest itself. We will be able to be in his presence because he has named us, he has removed death and sin and all of its consequences, and we can live with him there forever. 2 Corinthians 5.17 will become a, a literal reality for eternity. It says there, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and that he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So the gospel is the word of reconciliation, how we can have life with God for eternity. Revelation 22 isn't just describing some kind of spiritual things or spiritually describing the fact that we have eternal life. No, it's literally describing the results of the eternal life that we have now through faith in Christ and what it will be like for eternity because of this. So yes, we are named by Christ today and that naming this new creation that we are has impacts into eternity. And that needs to be our guiding principle for why we ought to obey the Lord today through service. Because uh, we ought to get used to serving Him today. We might as well get ready to do it now because that's what we're going to be doing for eternity. Notice again the end of verse 3, His bondservants will serve Him. And that uh, word there Latreo is the the Greek term. It's a very interesting term. Sometimes it's used to describe worship, and uh, other times it's used to describes it's used to describe service. I think that's perfect. We will worship God through service, the same way that we do today, but yet in a perfect, glorified body. Without the barrier of sin, without needing to confess our sins to Christ, we will be able to worship him through serving him perfectly. And that is the goal of the Christian life today. That is what we are supposed to be doing. According to Romans 12:1, uh it is our spiritual service of worship is to essentially be obedient to him. Romans 12:1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Same uh, latreo, a Greek term used there by Paul. So now we do it uh, in these sinful, physical bodies that need to confess our sins and make sure we restore fellowship with the Lord, then it will be perfectly in a glorified body for eternity. We will see his face, have his name upon our foreheads, and worship him through service. And this is the way it will be for eternity. Verse 5, there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. It says there uh, in verse 5. Notice again the, the future tense of these verbs. This isn't happening today. Uh, this is a promise for the way it will be in the future. There will no longer be any night. They will not have need of the light. Uh, they, God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. There is no night in the New Jerusalem. Will there be night outside of the New Jerusalem? I'm not sure. Uh, probably not. But I don't, I don't know because it isn't. all of the details aren't perfectly explained for us. This is, a, this is an existence that is so radically different from the one that we have now that, it's all, that it is impossible for our minds to conceive of exactly everything that is the way exactly everything is going to be. This is describing for certainty no night in the new Jerusalem in this city. God is the light. The, sa- the same way that he is today However, it will be physically manifested for us and we'll be able to see it. James 1.17, speaking of uh, God today, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Uh, John says in 1 John 1.5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Here in the eternal state, it will become uh, perfectly evident to us, physically manifested to us, the fact that God is light. And we will be able to see him as he is. And he will illumine us. Uh, he illumines us spiritually today helps us in our understanding of his word and uh, conviction of sin and this kinds of thi- these kinds of things, then it will be uh, perfectly and physically illumined by him. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of the darkness, at the creation that is, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So we we think about God speaking uh, light into existence, speaking the creation out of nothing into existence. That same God is the one who shines the light in your heart to trust in him. And in the future, he will illumine us perfectly, completely. Uh, And we see Paul making reference to this in one of his defenses the fact that this light had shone upon him. Uh, and in the future, he's still doing that same ministry in our lives today, but in the future, it will be complete. It will be total. Uh, total spiritual illumination, total physical illumination, so we can see around us. It's hard for us to even conceive of that. But one way one way to picture it is that in this Life. our our main uh, focus is on physical preservation. It has to be. Otherwise, we'll die. If we don't eat food, uh, drink water, uh, we provide for ourselves physically with air conditioning and these kinds of things, uh, that is our main focus. Then it will be spiritual, will be our main focus, and it will be completely illumined, to us by God. We will be made like Him. Not Him, not God, in spite of what the uh, prosperity gospel teachers will say that that we're little gods and this kind of thing. We're not God but we will be like Him so that we can live with Him forever. And we will reign forever and ever for eternity and eternity is the way it literally is rendered and God will still be in authority but we will be reigning with him Uh, us in fellowship with him perfectly forever and ever with sin removed all of its consequences removed living in uh, perfect bliss with the Lord forever and serving him in a way that is that is fulfilling, complete fulfillment. Uh, there's a lot of uh, fulfillment in our physical jobs. There can be. You can get uh, in a, from a good hard day's work and this kind of thing. You step away from it and think, "Ah, oh, that was that was great. Look what we accomplished today in doing whatever it is." Then it will be like that, but perfectly and done perfectly for the Lord, with none of the none of the consequences of sin. So while all of the details aren't laid out for us perfectly uh, and our imaginations can come up with a lot of uh, details that aren't in the text, I would warn against that. That can get kind of dangerous and kind of some weird uh, ideas can come out of that. We don't want to be weird. (laughs) We just want to be uh, in line with what the text says. The fact of the matter is that God is going to heal the problems of the nations. Uh, The problems of the people will be completely healed through this tree of life. There will be no sin, no consequences of sin, no strife, no cancer, no arguments with your neighbors. None of those kinds of things will exist anymore. It will be perfect life in the presence of God forever. And may he come and get us today so that we can begin to enjoy some of those benefits. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I thank you for the book of Revelation that is your plan for the future. And that we can uh, know and go to and rest in your plan when, when the, with the troubles of life surround us We can know that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that you are working together all of these things for us and for your good and for our good because you love us. Your word is very clear that you love us. In fact, you love us enough to have died for us and sacrificed yourself for us. And I just pray that we would, uh, if we need to, receive, just simply receive that gift of life through trusting in you believing in You, resting completely in You, ceasing from doing our own works to try to be made right with You, but instead just trust in Your sacrifice for our sins. And then I pray that You would be with us in our lives, that we would walk closely with You, looking forward to You accomplishing all of these wonderful things and looking forward to living with You in perfect bliss forever. And we just pray that... that. Uh, We would be strengthened and encouraged to serve you now, looking forward to the time when we will serve you forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.